passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast from CBS Sports. One, one pitch. Basketball pulled and Got a fantasy question? Email fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. Get ready to win your league. Where fantasy becomes reality. Now, here's Adam, Scott, Heath, and Chris. Welcome back in. This is Fantasy Baseball Today. I'm Chris Welsh. That is Scott White, and the reunion tour continues on. It was Adam Azer in the last episode. Scott, back on the pod. It's I was going to say the other Chris, but it's kind of like the original Chris, not the other Chris. It is Chris Towers <laughs> on the podcast. Towers, what's up, buddy? I'm fine with being the the other Chris. You've done you've done yeoman's work, <laughs> and uh, and I've I've frankly I flaked out, so I think I can relinquish the title of Chris to you. My favorite thing about me coming on the show for when I've been on was Adam's explanation to say, "Hey, listen." The probably maybe the top reason that Welsh is coming on is because his name is Chris and there's literally no edit that needs to be done in the open of the show. That's my favorite. <laughs> that's that's a good point. It's Adam good. is notoriously lazy. I don't even I don't really think of Chris Welsh as a Chris, though. He's the Welsh. You know what? It's, it's very funny you, you say that. I was at, I believe it was the um, Arizona Fall League, which we may get to in this episode. Oh, we got a couple things to cover. I was at the Arizona Fall League championship game, and I was sitting with somebody, a friend of mine, and someone right near me said, Chris, and I turned around, and all three of them looked at me, and we had this really weird, awkward interaction, because it was like, I'm not the guy, and they're looking at me like, what are you doing, buddy? And I realized, <laughs> and I made a commitment at that moment, actually. I'll no longer respond to Chris. I'm just going to respond to Welsh because I think it makes it easier on everybody. I mean, Towers, do you, yeah. do, you, do you can you make that commitment to Towers? Don't you think that's better played? You know, when you work in like the sports media world, it's a lot of uh, like guys who played high school football. And so they refer to everyone by their last name anyway. So I'm yeah. very comfortable as a Towers. <laughs> okay. Just in general. So it's it's White Towers Welsh. It's like a it's like an 80s type of band. We're like a big cinematic like nine piece band, two drummers. It's White Towers Welsh. Yeah, we are definitely a, that's definitely a prog rock band. Yeah. It's a prog rock. <laughs> exactly. Uh, on the episode today, we got a couple things we want to cover. Obviously, we are now living in a post World Series world. Uh, the uh, Washington Nationals. For some reason, I almost wanted to say the Houston Astros because it felt like that's where we were going. The Washington Nationals is our World Series champs. Uh, there's a lot to unpack from the World Series. As I mentioned, we may get, because there were kind of two instances of baseball, kind of ending signaling in my world. I'm a big Arizona Fall League guy. You guys know I covered and interviewed lots of players out here. That came to a close as the World Series came to a close. And this is the first time that's ever happened where they've ended simultaneously. So that kind of has completely as a whole ended our baseball season. But there's some things to unpack there. And I know you guys are going to be into prospects and who can help you in this coming season. And then, of course... We got the mailbag. We'll check out the mailbag and see what what uh, what is going on. But Scott White, let's start with you. We get to a game seven in the World Series. Look like the Astros were going to jump ahead. Then the Washington Nationals pulled it out. There's so much to unpack. I'm just curious. Give me your your World Series in you know elo- in your elegant words, if you will, of uh, what you thought of the series. And we're going to talk about the individual players as well. But from issues with ump robo ump calls needed to go in weird first base calls people want a softball type of first base now to everything uh encapsulate the world series for me scott oh man you you want to get into some some of the crazy <laughs> crazy little uh tributaries that are branching off from this river of a world series huh sure i i think i look i'm surprised the astros didn't win um, I, I thought they were clearly the best team in baseball. Uh, I thought of the NL teams that could beat them, you know, 
the Nationals did fit that description because they're the top three in their rotation was so good, uh, and yet their bullpen was so bad that it's still pretty surprising. They obviously had some hitters step up in a major way and were able to hang with the Astros offensively. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot. There are some questions that emerged from this in, in terms of how the Astros, you know, what they're thinking with regard to their rotation next year. Uh, the Nationals have a closer situation they're going to have to look at. But, you know, overall, it's, I, I don't know. It's, you know, part of it, like, I, I have a hard time not framing playoffs from the perspective of a Braves fan because, you know, obviously there aren't great fantasy implications. So my fandom really comes out and it gets frustrating to see now three times a team they beat for the division title go on to win the World Series when they only had one World Series title themselves. But Who were the first two? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you still going to be a Marlins fan, Chris? Because oh, a Marlins fan in New York is pretty pathetic. Oh, no, there's nothing better than a Marlins fan in New York. That's how yeah. you know you're you're a true... Actually, I've seen multiple Marlins hats. Not the new ones or the old new ones, but the old, old ones. You've seen twos mm. of threes of them walking the around. The good ones. The good ones. Yeah. So there are, there are dozens of us, Scott. Dozens. <laughs> well, you know, the Marlins did win uh, the AFL organization team they were the team organ the best organization in the arizona fall league with the prospects they brought out so you know what you can't win a world series but you can win best team in the afl chris you know there's only one who wins both so <laughs> uh, yeah all right so tars let me go to you then i want to set up what we're going to kind of do in this episode because I think this is a this is going to be a little bit squirrely for a lot of people because it's one thing when we're looking at the entire season as a whole. It's another thing when we start breaking down into splits. We're going to look at pre and post All Star break. Look at the final month, but then there's the treached playoff performance. How much can a playoff performance really affect draft value coming into the next year? So we're going to go. Um, and talk about a few of the players that probably have the positive, maybe even some that have the negative. But can you give me your overarching thesis, small and small thesis, on the idea of letting positively or negatively a playoff run or even a World Series run actually affect their upcoming value for the upcoming season? Yeah, I would say how much can a postseason run affect a player's value? Quite a bit. How much should it? Probably not very much. I mean... Juan Soto, I think, is going to be the poster boy for someone whose value is likely to increase. That probably was going to happen anyway, but the fact that he was so good on the biggest stage is, and the fact that he's so young and the fact that he's... Did you hear he was 20? Play. Did you hear he was 20, Chris? 21. 20. 20. Oh, did you hear he was 21? I, he I just actually, turned 21. He was yeah, four years old. This was happening. He was four years old last week. <laughs> that's where he I was. Actually, I hope he, I hope he continue. I just hope he increases his uniform number every year. Because awesome. right now he's one year younger. He's going to pass it at some point. He's got to go to 23 next year. I like but that. But no, he, he is – like he was amazing in this postseason. His, you, you saw everything. You saw his command of the strike zone. You saw the power the power that you know this year we weren't quite sure was actually going to be there because of how many balls he hit on the ground. This year he, he takes another step forward with the power – some of that may be, you know, we're playing with a juice ball. We'll have to figure out what that means uh, because I get the feeling baseball is going to dejuice the ball again. What do, you say, what, sure. do you, what do you mean, Chris? They never change the ball. The ball's never changed. What are you saying? Either that or they're just wildly incompetent. And either way, you <laughs> have to factor that in. But Juan Soto is so young, like we said, he's only 21. Yeah, He's going to get better. And I think the fact that he was so good on such a big stage – People are going to continue to build him up uh, into, you know, what I think will probably end up being, you know, at least a second round ADP, if not high. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I well, think I'm, first, I'm totally so. on board with second round. But Chris Welsh, we actually did our first mock draft of the offseason and we'll get into a full review of that probably next week. But yeah. Chris Welsh actually uh, kind of embodied the, the way Soto's value can go up here following this world series he took him ninth overall yeah in that draft and that was a roto league so not even one that directly rewards the plate discipline which is one area where soto clearly excels over uh, over the typical player the typical early rounder even so uh you know i, I don't think 
it's certainly not too much of a stretch to think he'll return first round value. But I thought I thought it was a little bit of a stretch with guys like Nolan Arenado still out there, uh, Freddie Freeman. But you know, and that's yeah, and that's the Chris, heart. That's Welsh clearly buying in. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm buying in, especially in you know from like a safety perspective. I'm locked into four categories on the on a very high level, and I was able to as well you know unpack in the next episode. I was able to piecemeal my uh, stolen bases, but he's got a really high variance, and I mean, we'll just jump right into him. But the only thing I would ask, and and Scott, I'm curious. Do you think though the world's uh, the playoffs X World Series into that can be a really dangerous sample size on the same run? Like obviously biggest stage we're all watching, you know, obvious values are going to adjust, but at the same time, you know, a simple World Series is going to change, did change yep. values coming into this season. And as fun as it can be, and as fun as it is to talk about, I think it's also pretty dangerous. And and like you said, I might have embodied that, but I was already top ten Soto coming into the playoffs, so that's where I already was. But I think people mm. are going to start justifying like top six. So it's a dangerous small sample size. Yeah, it is. And I think the further we get away from it, maybe maybe some of that will die down. I, I, you know, obviously Juan Soto was already regarded as a stud in fantasy circles. Yeah. So it's just, it's just the hype generated by him excelling on this national stage is going to make people more eager to draft him. So it's, it's probably a difference of a few spots we're talking about with him. Uh, you know, same with Strasburg, who I, I think looked more like an ace than, than maybe ever before. But he yeah, might a lot have, of that was a been situation. He might be at the top of the of adjustments. Here, let's do this, because I don't want to jump too ahead because the Soto thing before we move off of it. Cause I want to talk about Strasburg because he might be he might be the biggest improver, I think, in my mind, of all of these guys that because I I thought he teetered, but as you were saying, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Scott. I apologize. But no, Juan no Soto in the playoffs, he led the way. Uh, I believe tied with Jose Altuve, led the NL in homers during the playoffs with five. He was second coming into Game 7 with 13 RBIs. In Game 7, he ended up having an RBI, uh, two hits, and I believe Anthony Rendon uh, was able to get... He had one, so he was one above him during that time. So, you know, the 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 run that he had maybe a little bit... S- sub average where it was about it was in the 260s 270s uh through the playoffs 300 in um in the world series i mean biggest stage performance was at the top level average suffered a little bit do you think the justification of juan soto inside the top 10 be it what he did in the playoffs or the season is going to be justified like do you cringe when you see me take juan soto at nine no i don't i i I think the one thing i will say when it comes to, I would say specifically Scott and I on the podcast relative to the rest of the industry, we, and I'm speaking for Scott, so correct me if, if you think yeah. I'm, I'm telling tales out of school, but sure. uh, I think we tend to push back or pull back on the young hyped guys. Sure. You know, like there, cause there's a lot of, you know, either like this is my guy or this is the year it's going to happen, and there's a lot of guys who get drafted based on what they could become rather than what they currently are. And I think Scott and I tend to uh, be a little more measured, and I'm not saying that's better or worse, um, but we're less likely to be the ones who take Juan Soto in the first round. However, we were also probably the ones who were less likely to take Juan Soto in the third or fourth round last year, and well, don't we? I mean, Ronald Acuna, we were both... Skeptical sure. of him as a first rounder, he ended up being, I think, the top overall player in standard in, roto scoring. Yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously it could work out. Cringe is probably too strong, but it's it's just I I I really just don't want to mess up the first round pick. And I think there are enough foolproof players there. And look, Juan Soto is obviously great, so it's it's hard to say he's risky by comparison. He just you're in order to justify that spot, he has to do something he hasn't done yet. And I don't really see the reason given the alternatives to uh, invest in that regardless of invest in that level, regardless of what happened in the world series. It's, it's sort of my go-to analogy, which is with Nolan Arenado and Juan Soto, Juan Soto could be anything. He could even be Nolan Arenado. Like if, if Juan Soto next year hits 315 with 41 homers, and 220 combined runs in RBI, we will lose our minds. 
And that's the season Nolan, Ar- Nolan Arenado just had. I mean, but there's already, uh, if you hadn't heard, he's, he was 20 years old this season, guys. But he had <laughs> 220 combined runs in RBIs, 34 homers, and hit 382. So are you asking a player that, you know, coming in at 19 years old, who has progressed to become one of the game's best hitters over two years, hasn't hit that type of slump and is maybe one of the more uh, patient, better bats in all of baseball, and he is sub 25 years old to ask him to hit six more homers and add, you know, what, 20 on the batting average, 30, maybe. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. No, it's and, not. And, it's and, not. Yeah. So, I mean, I, the argument for me with Juan Soto and I can't like, here's what I can't do. I can't go in and construct a team drafting Juan Soto, then Fernando Tatis Jr. And then Pete Alonso. Yeah. And I'm like, Hey, look at me guys. I got all the young guys. Nope. That doesn't work. I, you have to minimize the risk, but Juan Soto is so established at this point, even when the stolen bases at this young career, I only still see upside, but it's a fair point. If you're like, Hey, he could be Arenado. If you think they're already not quite on the same level, I think they are on the same level. I think the deficiencies that Soto might have, they counteract the ones that you're giving to Arenado. There's more stolen bases, that type of thing. Does that make sense? And and the thing about Juan Soto is like, based on what he's done, like just to put it in perspective, based on what he's done, it's not outlandish to say that there's like a 50% chance he ends up being a Hall of Famer. Like based on like just the fact that he is an everyday player for two years before he turned 21, that means he's more likely than not going to end up being a Hall of Famer just based on the number of guys who have done that in the past. So like we are dealing with rarefied air when it comes to Juan Soto. So there, there's no real argument that you can make against him. Yeah, that's uh, a good, I think that's... it's just... It's just the uncertainty. I get it. It's the uncertainty in the youth. Okay, so Scott, then not to just go crazy on Juan Soto here, but I do think he's kind of the, you know, the the pick du jour here. He's the guy that everyone wants to know kind of coming in because of any of these guys that weren't maybe already in the first round, Juan Soto is pretty much establishing himself. Can you tell me, without giving too much away, who are a few of the Scott ranged players, the same range of players that are clearly you're clearly taking Soto over like Arenado specifically, like you don't need to tell me, you know, Yelich and Acuna and stuff, but who are his range yeah. of players that take the jump over Soto, regardless of this great run he's had. Uh, Arenado and, and Freddie Freeman strike me as being safer bets for batting average. If, if not anything else, uh, I mean, obviously Arenado playing course field, he always gets a ton of RBI, uh, and that gap, I think, narrows if you're talking about a points format where you're factoring in plate discipline, especially in the case of Arenado, who doesn't walk much. But uh, traditional five by five, I'd take Trey Turner. I'd take, really? I'd take Anthony Rendon. You would take Trey Turner. I don't yeah. believe you. I don't believe you. <laughs> I got I got Soto as a mid second rounder, and you took him late first round so it's kind of nitpicking and we should probably move on because there's a lot of other things to get to and my second round pick was super sexy so it kind of counteracted it i interrupted you when we were talking about strasburg but i just wanted to finish up on soto he ended up having five wins 47 strikeouts in 36 innings a sub one era only had four walks just an absolutely dominant playoff performance from strasburg and he's a guy to me that was kind of straddling this I don't know if I want to say elite because I don't want to make too much about something, but it was like this range of, you know, everyone's always a little bit uncomfortable, the injuries, and he kind of straddled this range of that to I want to draft him. And if anything, I might have more shares of him because his cost is going to come cheaper than some of the elite, elite pitchers. So what do you think the playoff run did to Strasburg and how you're going to value him? It may have caught up the layman fantasy player to what the analysts were already seeing because for me it doesn't change anything right i mean maybe if steven strasberg was a somebody who was unheard of or just establishing himself himself then this kind of world series run would would be something you could consider a breakthrough but steven strasberg was coming off it wasn't definitively the best season of his career but he stayed healthy and he excelled in a way that looks like he's really figured things out He's done a lot of tweaking with his arsenal over the years. He kind of refined it in a way that I think got back to his strengths uh, and and like featured the curveball more like he did when he was first breaking in. And that made him much more of a ground ball pitcher while still having the huge swing and miss ability. So it was kind of the perfect uh, the, the perfect profile to attack what this offensive environment 
what it, what it currently is right now. And because he also stayed healthy for only the second time in his career, I, I think I, I am comfortable calling him an ace maybe more now than, than ever before. Towers, uh, Scott had had, ooh, where did he go? Number 10 on his pitcher uh, ranks when we were doing the episodes. He was the 10th best pitcher in baseball. Do you think you've seen enough, especially through this playoff run, to justify that Strasburg sits behind Bueller and Flaherty to maybe jumping them and being in the same range as guys like Bieber and Clevenger? I'm going to say both yes and that I am probably less likely to draft Steven Strasburg this year than any point in the past couple of years. Because do, do you believe you're going to pay for last? You're going to pay this year for last year's stats by a hamburger yeah, today, and that type of thing. Sometimes that works out. Garrett Cole this year worked out. Jacob Degrom worked out. But there's a lot of times when you pay for the guy coming off his best season, and it ends up not working. Now I, I don't think it's going to end up not working in a way that will really hurt you very much. Like Steven Strasburg is good. He was good coming into this season. He was amazing back in 2017. I feel like that has kind of gotten memory hold, but he had a 252 ERA. Uh, I think he was top two or three in the National League in an uh, ERA plus. He was exceptional. And so I'm just, I'm less likely to pay for Steven Strasburg coming off the 209 and really it's 240 something inning season than I am coming off the 130 inning season just because I don't want to pay that premium. Scott, do you still feel comfortable with the range? You know, where I mean, we're, what, a couple weeks past our uh, SP uh, preview ranks episode, do you feel, I don't know, do you feel like you want to make an adjustment, like you want to jump him in, or just maybe maybe Move he jumped the tier? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he, he kind of marks the bottom of a tier for me. He's in the same tier as like Walker Bueller and, and Jack Flaherty. He's, he's just at the tail end of that tier because there's still that injury history. But I think, I think after him you go from clear aces to uh, sort of, you know, we're 90% sure they're aces after Strasburg. And this portion of Fantasy Baseball Today is brought to you by SeatGeek promo code FANTASY. Ticketing websites feel like they're being difficult on purpose. It's like they're so big they can get away with not caring about the customer experience. The real question is, how easy could it be if they actually cared? Well, with millions of live event tickets and price match guarantees, SeatGeek proves there is a better way. Search sports, live music, comedy, and more. They build a fast way to find tickets so you can stop searching for the perfect seat. You could start enjoying it. With over 50,000 five-star reviews, SeatGeek pulls together millions of tickets from all over the web, and then they rate them on a scale of 1 to 10. Even better, they break it down with green dots being the good deals and red dots being the overpriced ones. I've got the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it's by far the fastest and easiest way to find tickets. In fact, I was just looking up the red-hot Phoenix Suns as they just took down one of the best in the NBA, the 76ers. The Suns are on fire. And I'm looking to get to a game. And when I do, I'm using SeatGeek. You can use SeatGeek as well, and they want to give you $10 off your first purchase. All you need to do is use our promo code FANTASY. Download the SeatGeek app today. Use promo code FANTASY for $10 off your first purchase. That's promo code FANTASY. Get $10 off your first purchase right now. All right, so we can burn through a few more of these at uh, at will, if you will, uh, Scott and Towers. Garrett Cole, 47, uh, essentially did what Strasburg did, 47 strikeouts in 36 innings, sub-1 ERA. Garrett Cole definitively, and I know, Scott, you and I talked about it a decent amount over the last couple months, that Garrett Cole went from, like, teetering to, like, is he number one? Eh, he's probably close to number one, too. This is our guy pending most likely pending the destination he has in free agency. So Garrett Cole did nothing to hurt, if anything, just established himself as baseball's number one pitcher with most likely outside of Colorado uh, destination, probably not having too much of a factor. Yeah, that run he went on, his final nine starts of the regular season, all of them with double-digit strikeouts. Uh, I mean, 110 strikeouts in 61 and two-thirds innings with a 161 ERA. Stupid. Uh, yeah, I mean, the postseason was just a continuation of that, basically, and I didn't even need to see it uh, for for me to be convinced he's my number one pitcher just because of the the advantage in years he has over both Verlander and Max Scherzer, who would be the other candidates there. I wish he would... S- Still going to have the Astros backing him because obviously that improves win potential. But I, I don't think he's going to some cellar dweller. So 
it would it would basically be only Colorado. Even Texas, I'd be fine with. I what think. if he went to Chris's yeah. Marlins? He won't. So. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm just, I'm just trolling. <laughs> Great part. He's not going to the Tigers. He's not going to the Blue Jays. So yeah, we don't have to worry about that. I, he's he's great. He's he is number one. Chris, does uh, Garrett Cole have any of the same Steven Strasburg thing that, you, that we were just talking about? I mean, the cost is going to be absolute maximum. I'm not totally sure where you are, at least walking into 2020, as far as your need for starting pitching early on. But are you? do you want to have shares of Garrett Cole? Because, I mean, he, he established himself as the, the constant of constant. Oh, I mean, I'd, I'd love to have him on my team. And the difference between him and Steven Strasburg is just we're, we're now coming off three straight 200-inning seasons for Garrett Cole. You know, he did have elbow issues back in 2016, but, you know, you're looking at four out of five with 200 plus three in a row now coming into 2020. The only thing, I guess, if I had to nitpick, yes, he's coming off a career year, but it's not like this came out of nowhere. It was a continuation and a building upon what he did in 2018. Uh, the only thing that I guess if I had to poke a hole in it would be just the fact that I guess he did run out of steam just a little bit. Now, he was still incredibly effective, but in the World Series and in the ALCS, his swinging strike rate was down. Uh, they talked about this on the broadcast, especially with the four-seam fastball. It wasn't as effective. The strikeout rate was down in those three starts, but it's three starts at the end of a long season. You're not knocking Garrett Cole because of that. I hope someone out there is like, Astros didn't bring Garrett Cole in the ninth inning. He's got to go down. They didn't believe in him. They didn't trust in him. By the way, Justin Verlander hasn't won a, a World Series game. He's garbage. I want all those takes. I want to hear all those takes. Wow. I mean, they definitely should have brought him in. It's ridiculous that they didn't bring him in. But I hope <laughs> they hold it against him. That's what I want. I want them to be like, oh, Garrett Cole, they don't trust him. Uh, a couple other guys that had really, really good performances to tie into 2020. Jose Altuve. Also had five homers. He was with Soto. Uh, 338 average going into that game seven. He was up there with doubles. He had a couple stolen bases, which is good to see. And Anthony Rendon. I mean, if if there's an argument, this is one I struggled with. And Scott, you might like this, and you might be with, you kind of referenced it before. I wanted to take Anthony Rendon in the mock that we had because the playoff run, I mean, he was at the very tippy top of batting average. He had a couple homers, most RBIs, most doubles, more walks and strikeouts. He was beyond elite, beyond elite. And if there is a guy that you can trust, if you don't want to get it wrong in the first round, that screams Rendon, Scott. Yeah. I feel like the gap between Arenado, Rendon, and Bregman, those top three third basemen, has become so narrow that uh, on a different day, I'll decide totally. I prefer one versus the other two. I, I think it's easier in traditional five-by-five five, uh, to just to go with Arenado as the top option because you don't have to worry about, you know, he doesn't walk as much as the other two. Uh, but I would probably put Arenado third in a points league for that reason. I do wonder with Rendon, I mean, I, regardless of format, on a per-game basis, he was the best third baseman this past year. He's been the best third baseman in points leagues for a couple of years in a row now. But, um, you know, he w was so good overall that even in Roto Leagues, he was number one on a per-game basis. So there's the injury history there. That's one thing. But the other thing I worry about with him is uh, most of his gains were with his hard contact rate spiking. And so you wonder how much somebody like him would be uh, impacted by a ball change. And, you know, this ball change is so theoretical because Boys. there was the ball change, there was the juiced ball change of, like, 2016, and then there was the juiced ball of 2019, and are we going back? If they made a change, would it be from the uber-juiced ball to the to the less juiced ball, or would it be pre-2016 ball that wasn't juiced at all? We don't know. We, and we don't know if it's going to happen at all because we don't. They're, they're not even talking about all it. I so I don't even know how like, much to factor any of that in. I just feel like there's a bunch of scientists with white coats sitting around. They've discovered the nuclear bomb, and they're just like, we don't know what to do with this thing. And like nobody knows how this, or like you know, a collider. They don't know what they've built. They don't know what they've done with the baseball. No one can identify outside of baseball players being like, hey, by the way, the seams are tighter. That's about the only thing. They don't know what they're doing. I I can't factor that in. I don't know about you guys. I can't 
be in that world where I factor if the ball is adjusted again. Like, it, like if you are identifying Anthony Rendon as a benefit, a beneficiary of the juice ball, I can't have that be any factor in my brain of why I would um, negatively, I would negatively impact him because they might fix the juice ball because I don't think anybody knows what's going on with that. Well, and he's really good regardless. I think it's more about the guys like a, you know, I would say a Didi Gregorius would be the kind of guy who hits a lot of wall scrapers. And obviously, if he doesn't go back to the Yankees, he would lose a ton of value anyway. But then he's another guy who, if he loses five to 10 feet off of a fly ball, that could really impact him. Or Scott wants to say Eduardo I, Escobar, but yeah. Well, I think I think it basically makes the difference if you're. Based on what he did this past year, first rounder, clearly. Points or Roto, he deserves to go in the first round. And he went 19th overall in this mock draft we're referencing, which was well behind Arenado and Bregman, and I thought crazy low for him. I think I have him 14th, personally, Rendon in in Roto Leagues. In points leagues, he is a first rounder for me, and I think he's only behind Breg. I think I go Bregman, Rendon, and Arenado in points leagues at third base. I'm excited to talk about that mock. I'm excited to get into that. Just a couple other guys, and then I actually want to want to hit the inverse. But Scott, I know you added a few players on here, uh, potentially on the positive run. Howie Kendrick is was incredible. I mean, thanks to Howie Kendrick, uh, Jose uh, Yurkiti was. It was really interesting that they gave him the number four spot, and we actually saw him in this game. Yep. And then there were even a couple other guys. So let me just open it up to both of you. Uh, we'll start with you, Scott. Any other postseason positives that you might want to hit that are going to affect 2020? Well, speaking specifically for the two teams in the World Series, yes, it was interesting the way the Nationals handled Howie Kendrick in the playoffs because one of my frustrations during the regular season, and they never came close enough that it was ever really worth bringing up, um, was how uh, why weren't they playing him that regularly during the regular season? And he's old, and maybe it was to spare him, but you know, usually even in that situation, it's a three days on, one day off sort of deal, like the Brewers with Ryan Braun. And it wasn't, you know, at times the Nationals would go a week without playing Howie Kendrick, even though you look at his numbers. I mean, he was basically Cattell Marte, he had a Cattell Marte type breakthrough as a part-timer, and then we see him come through in a major way this postseason. So what what makes it especially interesting is he's a free agent. And is that going to be a motive for him in choosing a new team, someone that wants to play him every day? Is he at an age where he just recognizes that's not something he can do? Um, I, I, think, I think that's something to watch closely because he could be pretty sneaky late round pickup as a middle infielder, depending on on how that plays out. And then Urquidy, yeah, I, I presumed Wade Miley if they never needed a fourth starter and, and the Astros, you know, aggressively chose to just use their top three in the ALCS. But they did turn to a fourth starter in the World Series and it was Urquidy. I assumed it would have been Wade Miley, but I guess he finished the season so horribly that they didn't want to go that route. Well, that, uh, I mean, Urquidy to me was part of this this blob of interesting pitchers that the Astros kind of experimented with during the season. And, you know, I wasn't really sure who was in the lead of, of that group. And I, I think this suggests that it definitely was Urquidy. Um, but they're losing Cole, right? He's walking free agent. We assume they're getting back Lance McCullers. He looks good. Tommy John a lot surgery. of video out there of him throwing currently. He was hitting uh, low 90s. So he looks Forrest pretty good. Whitley. After a terrible season in the minors, you know, spoiler alert, really bounced back in the AFL and still has a high prospect standing. Um, I, I presume Urquidy has a job going into next year based on this, but there there still is there still is a lot for him to contend with. It feels so Josh James to me. Uh, I have a hard time. I have a hard time with overall evaluation of prospects with the Houston Astros outside of, you know, the highly projectable long-term starters with incredible stuff. The Astros just do weird things. I mean, Towers Urquidy, is he a guy for you? Because we fe- I, I, I didn't, but I know a lot of people that fell into the Josh James trap this past year. We've done it in past years with Frankie Montas. The Astros do this to us. I'm not willing to bite on Arkady this year, are you? It depends what the price is. If it's what if it's Josh you know, James from this? I year? mean, Josh James last year was mostly going in like the 250s. Yeah, it was pretty or, late. Or late. So you know, if if it's that cost, I don't mind paying him because there's no such thing as a bad pick there. Now, if he's someone who 
like locks into a job early on, people start talking him up and he starts climbing and climbing and climbing and gets like, I don't know if Nick Pavetta is the right comp, Mm -hmm. but that kind of thing where everybody starts targeting him as a sleeper and he ends up moving into like the 150, 100, that's when I start to get scared. But I can't see that happening with him. So if if it's more like a Josh James situation, then I, I think I'll have some shares. Chris, what about you? It could be World Series or playoff in general. Just open it up to ending the playoff run. Are there any players that you think their stock improved enough, uh, even just simply through a playoff run, that you're going to count for 2020? Well, I do think, you know, you mentioned it, but I do want to point out that, you know, Jose Altuve, obviously, really great postseason. I think was in the was close to setting a record for most hits in a postseason. Uh that was building off of his really strong second half. That's a really encouraging thing to see that he was able to keep that up against the higher level of competition in the postseason. That makes me think moving forward, hey, Jose Altuve might be past these knee issues and and might be someone who can be a, a high-level contributor yet again. Scott, you had a couple other guys that were looming out that I don't think were even necessarily World Series. Uh, let's drop and kind of finish in this conversation with the playoffs and the World Series run. A couple other guys you mm-hmm. think improved that stock? Well, not necessarily improved it, but I, I think a couple of noteworthy developments from the playoffs were the, the, the way the Yankees handled uh, their all their hitters specifically leaving Luke Voigt off the ALCS roster. And he was on the ALDS roster, but strictly as a bench bat. He was playing a lot down the stretch, as he was early in the season. Um, but they went strictly with LeMahieu at first base, Glaber Torres at second, Didi Gregorius at short, and uh, Gio Urshela at third. Uh, it, you know, they even left Voigt off in favor of Giancarlo Stanton, who we now know was dealing with a pretty severe injury that kept him from being a major contributor. And yet it's kind of like the Astros with their rotation. Like there, there are enough openings that could develop that he still ends up having a big role next year. And there are also enough other players in the mix here that he could not. It, it, it just so much remains to be seen here. Didi Gregorius is a free agent, right? So that, you know, could potentially make labor tours the full-time shortstop. Uh, Mayhew full-time second baseman, maybe Voight slots in there. But then they also have Mike Ford, who I think peripherally looked even stronger than Voight this year. Uh, also got Andujar, have, who's going to come back, and they yep, could Miguel bring, they could, and they exactly. could sign a big-time third. Ba- they could sign a guy like Rindo, and then they could Miguel Andujar is a terrible third baseman, and Gio Urshela. You know, obviously they were relying on him over Voight. And also you got to factor in Voight ended up needing hernia surgery as soon as the season was over. So he was playing through a pretty severe injury himself. And who knows how much that impacted his production. But yeah, the the Yankees infield and the Yankees are going to be a team to watch this offseason just in terms of uh, following along with their plans. I mean, they're always a team to watch because they could always make a big play. Right. But they have a lot of. Uh, a lot of different directions they could go, specifically with their infield this offseason. And this only, I think, uh, creates more questions there. What about your guy, Flaherty? Did you hit Flaherty? Yeah, well, it's, you know, two of his three playoff starts weren't very good. And that was after him being just completely untouchable for the entire second half. And it just makes me rethink whether I should have him over Walker Bueller because my case for that was, okay, well, Bueller... For the full season, his peripherals are a little better, but Flaherty was just so unbelievable to end the year, and it's close enough that I kind of want to see if, if, if he 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 found, uh, you know, a new gear there that maybe that maybe puts him past Walker Bueller, and I'm I'm not God, sure about that anymore. It. Don't fall for it. Full season statistics are more predictive well, than half season I, statistics. But when but when he goes from having like a five ERA in the first half to a point six three ERA. Yeah, in the he had a two seven five ERA. He was really good. Yeah. I was hoping you guys were gonna keep going. I just wanted to like keep hearing it. I I felt it like it was brewing up and I was like, oh, we're about to go. Let's go. Uh but that's good. I like those. Those are I good. Got, I want to pull up the specific numbers so I don't exaggerate here. So he had no, I, that, that's pretty close. Four sixty four in the first one half, point nine one in the second. He was awesome, but like, he's not going to be a point nine one ERA of guy. Of course, of course, he could not. be a two seventy five ERA guy. Yeah, though, which is what he was, and and that was better than Bueller. But you know, peripherally, uh, in terms of like swinging strikes, and uh, I don't even remember. But you know, Bueller was a little more attractive 
from like the analytical standpoint. But is was the gap there enough that you're going to uh, go against the guy whose value is skyrocketing? I don't know. I you know, and I I know even less now since Flaherty wasn't couldn't keep it going in the playoffs. All right, uh, let's take a quick stop and let me tell you about a couple of our friends here, and uh, and let me tell you about one of our good friends here, and then I am going to flip this conversation into a different place. Worn by players like Michael Harris to meet the demand of elite ball players, the New Balance Fuel Cell 4040 V7 is a versatile option. The 4040 V7 is built for the athlete who needs responsiveness and ability to cut and run at their full speed. The model features a fuel cell foam underfoot and a synthetic and mesh upper to provide breathability, comfort, and a snug fit as you round the bases. The fuel cell midsole features nitrogen-infused foam specifically designed to propel athletes forward. Learn more about the 4040 at newbalance.com. Justin Verlander. Most earned runs with 17 of them. A 4-3-3 ERA in the playoffs. That leads me to an email. Brandon emails. He says, hey, Chris and uh, Scott and Chris, and that works on both Chris's here. I know this is more of a concern that Adam brings up a lot, but any worries about Scherzer and Verlander for next year, considering both are getting older and both have deep postseason runs adding to their innings totals? Adam always talks about that, but I'm not sure if there's any strong evidence to back it up. Sale immediately comes to mind, but not sure if he can uh, relate his struggles this season to a deep postseason run last year. So, Towers, let's start with you here, since you are a Chris, and it was uh, labeled to a Chris. Do you have age concerns to Scherzer and Verlander, and especially the innings that both of those guys put on here when walking into next year? And Verlander also had some subpar results. Uh, Less so because of the postseason, although with Scherzer, uh, the postseason actually does play into my concerns because it was a continuation of the back issues that he was dealing with that finally caused him to miss some time for really the first time in his career. I think he had uh, a finger injury back in 2017 that might have cost him a start or two. But this was the really the first time that we'd ever seen Max Scherzer look fallible. And going into next season, we talked a lot the last couple of seasons, and it ended up being true in – you know, a couple of cases with Clayton Kershaw, where once he started having that back issue, it just kept popping up and it never debilitated him and it never stopped him from being very good, but it made him risky. Well, Max Scherzer's five years older, looked okay, but really clearly wasn't at his best, but he was dealing with a back injury. The fact that that's a continuation of what he was dealing with in the regular season, that's what gives me pause with Max Scherzer. And let's not forget, I mean, Verlander and and Scherzer are used to this, right? (laughs) Verlander went to another World Series with the Astros. They both together went to two World Series with the Tigers. So they're used to pitching deep into playoffs, and it hasn't impacted them in the past. I do worry about the age. I do worry about what's starting to become uh, you know, the potential for some nagging injuries here with Scherzer. As Chris said, that's that's a big reason why I decided to rank them both behind Cole uh, for next year. But I, I don't want to overstate the risk either. They are certainly at a point in their career where it, they could just fall off any year. You and, and I have, if, you and I, Scott, you have point talked, to the age. And we've talked about the falling knife syndrome that happens in fantasy. I always like it. I call it, it's like the David Ortiz thing to me. There was like a three year run where everyone was like, well, listen, I can't get down with David Ortiz because it's going to fall mm-hmm. off and it's about to fall Nelson off. Cruz. But I, Nelson Cruz but is I another example. E- I think it's easier to, oh, I think it's easier to ignore it with and correct to ignore it. It's starting pitcher because the risks are already so inherent there that would you rather have, would you rather have the guy who keeps doing it and one of these years he won't, but you don't know when, or would you rather have the guy who, you know, did it for a year or two, but doesn't have that extended track record of being able to handle that kind of workload and being able to perform at that elite level? Uh, I, I think I'd, I think I'd rather have the first guy. Do you almost look at that like a Max Scherzer versus Blake Snell? Would that be a fair kind of comparison to what you're saying? I know it's a little sure. bit. Okay, is yeah. it the same general or, area? Or, you know, like Luis Castillo, Lucas Giolito, something like that. I mean, obviously, that's a little further down, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah, if you want to go in the... Yeah, and I think you can make bigger calls on that type of stuff. As far as negativity goes, then, since we're on a little negative run, let me finish up the negativity. Two players I'm very curious at your guys' take. If what happened in the playoffs is going to have a negative effect to what their postseason value was starting to look like, or their, their post-regular season value for 2020... 
And the two guys are Cody Bellinger and Carlos Correa. Uh, Cody Bellinger ended up only hitting 211 in the playoffs, had seven Ks and 19 at bats, only one extra base hit. You add that on top of the second half drop where we you know we've talked about it, where he was hitting 336 in the first down to 263. I feel like Cody Bellinger moved from a lockdown top four, maybe five pick to maybe closer down to eight or nine. And then Carlos Correa, you know, though, was hitting the ball and his main thing was just healthy. He still had a really subpar average. I think he hit. He was better in the World Series, but overall, he was right around 200. I think he led the way in strikeouts for uh, for the playoff run. So, Towers, do you think that Bellinger or Correa hurt themselves through the playoffs coming into 2020? I don't think so, and, and especially with Bellinger. Like, yeah, he only hit 261 in the second half. He wasn't quite as good. He was never going to keep that up. He was never going to hit, like, you know, peak Mike Trout like he did in the first half. But uh, a lot of that was a 266 BABIP, which maybe you can say, okay, maybe he won't be a super high BABIP guy. He is a lefty. Maybe he can get shifted. But I think overall, you know, he hits 261 with a 266 BABIP. Even if you just give him a 290 BABIP and he hits 280, perfectly fine with that as my top five pick. Uh, that's not really changing, especially because he does have speed. He's obviously got great power. Uh, I really don't have any qualms with him. Correa, I don't know. I could see Correa kind of like George Springer did this year, finally having that season where he just puts it all together without really the sign that it was coming. Although he was very, very good this year. It's just a question of whether he can stay healthy. If he does get a discounted price, I'm fine drafting him. But shortstop is such a deep position that it is tough for me to consider reaching for a guy who you know, may not – I would say at this point probably isn't going to hit for a great average, isn't going to steal bases. You know, he, he's had six since 2016 total. So that's where it gets tough for me with Correa. It's not so much that he had a bad postseason. It's just, is he just a three-category guy at a, at a position where there's 12 to 15 guys who are really good? I have a problem um, – just like giving up on Carlos Correa. Like I, I always seem to find myself with him and a little bit more of a spoiler alert to the mock draft. Uh, I took Carlos Correa and I got, I, which I think is an extreme discount, but it comes back to Scott, what you and I have talked about for a little while is, and what towers just said, the position is deep. And I actually had an yeah. internal battle of a very young shortstop to be excited about versus Carlos Correa. But because I had gone a little bit young at the top with Juan Soto, I went against it and I said, I'll take the discount with a Carlos Correa than trying to buy in on the young shortstop here. But the position is so dang deep, Scott. It's amazing the big names that are outside of my top 10 at shortstop and third base, both. So, yeah, I mean, Carlos Correa, just, just the fact that he has an injury history now, it makes him harder. It makes him someone that among that group is harder for me to invest in. Now here, here's one thing to keep in mind with Carlos Correa is, you know, I I made the George Springer comparison. Well, George Springer, I think was 30, maybe 31 this year. Uh, Carlos Correa just turned 25. And we're talking peak. Peak Carlos Correa is what you're alluding to. We're coming he into will, peak. Just the fact that like there could be an absolute monster season coming from Carlos Correa. And we've seen like little glimpses of it. 2017. He stays healthy, plays 109 games, but has a 941 OPS. 2019 plays 75 games, has a 926 OPS. It's yeah. really it's a question of whether he can stay healthy. But if he does stay healthy, mm-hmm. you know, look back at Giancarlo Stanton in 2017. You I know, just, I just hate things. that it. I just hate that it's back stuff with Correa. Sure, you know, but the cost is so cheap. I mean, the co- I mean, he's like sub top fifty. Sub top fifty for Carlos Correa seems like a worthwhile investment. I mean, in seventy five games, he hit twenty one homers. Average wasn't in the range where we want to vomit. It was two eighty, two seventy nine <laughs> to be technical. Yeah, he was fine. Yeah, he was fine when he played. We he was we were good. we were in a good spot. The power seemed a little bit yeah. overinflated, but I think seemingly we would have walked away with probably close to a hundred hundred thirty plus season. But unfortunately, it's on par with so many good shortstops right now, so you can't pay the high cost, but that's what Correa doesn't come with, which makes him so interesting. That's it. Okay, good. I silenced the crowd. That's beautiful. So as many of you know, I've only said it three to 400 times since I've been on this show. I'm in Arizona, and uh, we just had the end of the Arizona Fall League. Just ended up, and i been three, four, five games a week I'd get out to interviewing players, interviewed a lot of great players that 
you guys will be drafting very soon if you're not already in dynasty leagues. But the transition I would ask you guys real quick, and we and I'm gonna set the stage for some AFL guys, which is just to say some young prospects for you guys to look at in 2020. The Arizona Fall League did one thing that was very interesting. They experimented with the Robo Ump. That was the biggest call through the playoffs. I saw everyone's like, hey, get the dang robot in here. <laughs> well, I had first hand of it, and we didn't know it at first. And I have a very vivid memory. I'm watching this prospect for the Cardinals. His name is Griffin Roberts. And he's up there, usually throws in the high 90s. He's throwing about low 90s. And I'm sitting next to, I don't know who this guy is, but he's like really excited. He's like, come on, come on. And then the the pitch comes in. The ump waits two seconds, calls it, and this guy freaks out. And he freaks out. And I'm like, what is happening? And he turns over and he goes, ah, they're using the RoboUmp system. And he goes, that's my son. It's Griffin Roberts' dad who's sitting there. And they had all been informed that the RoboUmp is there. And... Throughout the AFL, guys, there was plenty of videos. Uh, J- uh, I think it was um, Jacob Hayward with the Giants. He yeah. was thrown out of a game for one of the calls, and there was somebody in the championship game. Uh, one of the games, I'm completely drawing a blank right now, but two guys were thrown out of games with the robo-ump, and when finally everybody got on track, they realized what was going on. The players didn't know who to get mad at, so... <laughs> Do you have thoughts on robo-umps after the playoffs? Towers, let's start with you. I'm curious because I do have firsthand knowledge of seeing how it went down. I don't think it's as pretty or as eloquent as everybody thinks it is, but people want it. Well, it's worth noting that in Arizona, I believe they were using a different tracking system than the one that Major League Baseball is installing next year. So that's worth noting. I'm not sure what the difference. I think one uses lasers, one uses Doppler. I don't know which one is which, but I know they are different systems, so... Worth saying that, it's also worth saying that the pitch tracking technology is not quite as accurate as the dot that shows up on your uh, broadcast graphic makes it seem. There is a an error bar of, I, I think it's about a half an inch on average, one way or the other, uh, for various reasons. And, you know, they've calibrated them and reduced that gap, but I'm generally skeptical of the robot ump. I would love to watch a Sunday night baseball game where they take the K zone away, but don't tell anyone that it's a robot um, <laughs> making the strike calls. Cause I bet people would get just as mad because one, when we're watching at home, the perspective is off center or it's up and we can't actually tell what a strike or a ball is because the way the ball moves and the flight and the path and where it crosses home plate, we're getting mad at stuff that we can't really know is a ball or a strike anyway. So I'm generally, I'm sort of becoming like a sports Luddite. Get replay out, get robot umps out. Yeah. Well, that's just, what I was going to say. Like people think they want robot umps. They look just like they thought they wanted review in football and in baseball. And I, I haven't done any polling or anything, but just kind of reading the room, it seems like people are over, over the replay system in football and definitely over it in baseball. And it's, I mean, how much, like how much to to me it also comes down to how much of the um sort of the show do you want to give up Sports to in, in the name of like you know pinpoint like yeah ex, like extreme <laughs> precision well here's the biggest problem it's, with it's it it's just kind of clinical right like it, to a point that it, at the end this is just entertainment in the in the AFL the biggest problem is and it has nothing to do I don't even think with where the zones were or where the balls were coming in is the system was like a bad Skype call you know you've been on a bad Skype call where everyone's two or three seconds behind the pitch yeah. would come in we'd all sit there for one or two seconds and then shoot and then everyone would stare at each other and then the guys they just they didn't know what to do with themselves they wanted to freak out some would just laugh but the ump what would the ump do he go I got the call. They have headpieces in. They have little headpieces in, and they're waiting for the call. It makes the game awkward. And I think that's something that that's it's one really good thing that we pulled from the AFL is as much as everybody's calling for the system, they've got they've got data. They've now got quantifiable data that they can show not only to the accuracy to what it does to the game. And it wasn't perceived well. It was really bad. Though I would tell you the heckling in the stadiums, A plus. A-plus with robots. <laughs> Binary code. It's all ones and zeros, zump, all that type of stuff was super fun. Now, either of you guys, prospect guy. Towers, are you a prospect guy at all? I mean, you already told me you don't want to draft the young guys, so I feel like I know my answer. But, like, how, how in tune are you? I always, like, football takes me away. 
And then in the off season, I do my deep dive and I read Scott's all Scott stuff and, and I get back into it. So I'm a little rusty, but I know that I'm looking at the names. I know these guys, I know the big names. Okay. So let me present to you guys um, a couple players here and I want to get your take on it and, and please throw anything at me because I've got, I've got three areas here from the Arizona fall league. I saw every single player in the Arizona Fall League a multitude of time, which is actually really hard to do. You, would, I mean, there's only six teams, so you might be like, oh, man, you got like six weeks, you can catch them all. It's actually really hard to catch all these guys at the same time. Plus, guys leave. There were you know, some really good players. Joey Bart was only there for a couple of weeks, Jared Kelnick. I've got three players for you that I think are going to have early season impact that people need to watch for. And, Scott, we'll start with you because I would be curious at your take if you are with me on them. Number one is Joe Adele who is an obvious, if you're any type of a prospect person, or even not, you should know who Joe Adele is. This was my uh, crowning achievement at the end of my Prospect One interviews. I got to interview, a very long interview with Joe Adele, going through a multitude of topics. He finished the Arizona Fall League, hitting 273, three homers, had a couple stolen bases, nothing great. But the power that this guy shows, Jim Callis gave him the top power tool in all the Arizona Fall League. It's a completely different sound. He's a pro already, and that was something I talked to him about with growth, and he's on to Team USA right now. Number two was the AFL MVP, Royce Lewis of the Minnesota Twins, who had a really bad season, and unfortunately, I decided to start my interview with him asking him about that, and that was stupid. That was a dumb move by me, though he's the nicest person on the planet. He ended up winning the MVP here, hitting 353, three homers, five stolen bases, and played Four different positions here. Shortstop, second, uh, third base, and center field. So versatility. And then obviously Forrest Whitley, who we talked about. And the reason I bring this up, starting with you, Scott, is that in drafts, especially bigger drafts, you are going to want to find and pinpoint the spots where you can take advantage of guys that would come up early and have big impact, like players we saw this season, like Pete Alonso, like Bo Bichette in years past, Eloy Jimenez and Ronald Acuna and all of that. And I believe that Joe Adele, Royce Lewis, and Forrest Whitley are those players. Do you disagree, Scott, that they're, the juice isn't worth the squeeze this coming season? Uh, I, I would expect in most standard mixed leagues, Forrest Whitley and Joe Adele will be drafted. I think Forrest Whitley has a very good chance of debuting at some point in April. For the Astros. I mean, his. you talked about how Lewis had a bad season, Royce Lewis. Forrest Whitley, I mean, he was considered the top pitching prospect of baseball coming in, was supposed to make a midseason debut, and just was terrible. 799 but, ERA, 44 walks, and 59 innings, but he did strike out 86. Was he it, and it was weird. It was, this season or last season? No, that was last. That was the, the previous it, season, which he was in the fall league last year as well. It, it, was, it didn't make a... People couldn't figure out what was going on with him, and and the stuff still looked great. The fact he was great at um, and the Arizona Fall League, I think, puts him uh, should relieve a lot of concerns. And I I think you know his his prospect stock hasn't fallen <laughs> much despite that awful showing. Something I can tell um, you too. I just want to add to it, and I don't mean to interrupt because I asked you a question. But Whitley did talk about this, and he talked about that he found out that it was a mechanical issue, and it was with his shoulder. And I don't know if I've talked about this before. I might have done it on Prospect One, but um, he did some interviews that what he realized when he came out here to Arizona Fall League, he had identified that he was dropping his, I believe it was his left shoulder, maybe yeah, his left shoulder too far down, and it was getting him off kilter, and he was completely losing all command. And then what he ended up doing is he was able to straighten it out, and he ended up having a 2.88 ERA out here in the uh, fall league. And I believe he led the way with 32 strikeouts in 25 innings. The smallest changes can make the biggest difference in baseball, I tell you. Um, now, Joe Adele, I'm not as confident we're going to see him early. I, I mean, Cole Calhoun presumably is walking, and they'll have an opening and all of that. But he got promoted to AAA at the end of last year and, and struggled at, at what was an even more hitter-friendly environment than the majors. So I, I don't know. I mean, he could have a huge spring, and, and then he's on the fast track suddenly, too. I'm just – I don't know that I'm going to be the one to invest in Adele. And in the case of Royce Lewis, I mean, I think he still has stuff to prove in the minors. He does. And beyond that, there isn't really an opening for him, right? I mean, well, versus I, I would argue or, the versatility. Or, That's one of the big things with him. Like he kind of pooped okay. it with me when I interviewed him because I kind of was like, hey, man, you know, are you done with being a shortstop? And he's like, no, I'm a shortstop. He's like, but they gave me the option to not come here 
or I could play some other positions. I think that was a little bit clouded because he played third base prominently. He played some second, and he was in center field, and he shined in center field. So the reason I put him on the list of coming up earlier than you expect is I think with the versatility and a successful start to the season and what you guys are going to see in spring training, that's going to – that's the Twins are going to want to bring him up because he's got – I mean, better versatility than any player they've got. And look at how much Byron Buxton gets hurt. It's a, it's a tough, it's a it's, tough balance, of course. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's just the fact he hasn't really mastered even double a, uh, as encouraging as the AFL showing was, I mean, he hasn't mastered high class a, if we're going to be, if we're going to get right down to yeah, it, though, he point. did move up to double a and you know, uh, you got Jorge Polanco coming off a six win season at shortstop. Luis Arias looks really good at second. Miguel Sano obviously is going to have a lineup spot, presumably at third. And and something could go wrong in any of those spots. And if Lewis is firing all cylinders, then yeah, maybe he does get the call. I'm just I'm just not ready to to uh presume that with him. Towers, what does it take for you, um, not going too much further into this, and 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 really I feel bad because it's horrible cheap plugs, but I would suggest if you want to learn a little bit about either of these guys, Adele and Lewis, go listen to my interviews on Prospect One. Adele specifically, because he's a really in tuned and smart, smart hitter. He's uh he's very analytically in tuned. I a lot of hitters gave me this like stupid answer I hate hearing about like oh, I don't want to hit for power I just want to hit for gaps and I kind of pressed him on that I'm like a lot of guys keep saying that and he's like mm, it's kind of a stupid answer he's like this is what I do and he's like really smart about it but I think stolen bases are going to go by the wayside all of that aside what does it take for you to invest and what's the what's the maximum investment you're willing to spend to potentially buy on the next Ronald Acuna because that's how Joe Adele is being viewed. Him and Luis Robert are players that you are going to have to spend a top 150 pick, maybe closer to 125. Is it something that you can do with the potential to have, you know, the absolute big breakout season? Another one where I'm less likely to do it, but if the price is 150, then I'm more likely to do it. What I don't like to do is what we were doing last year with Eloy Jimenez and, and Vladimir Guerrero. Where, okay, Eloy ends up hitting well towards the end of the season. It's not a total loss on either, but clearly neither was worth the pick that you were investing because you had to go get them in, you know, the third or fourth round in Vlad's case and, you know, in the 80 to 100 range in Eloy's case. And so those are still really valuable picks. Those are still picks where you can get impact players, obviously, especially the third, but even going down to 100. And so going out and getting, you know, the next big thing who hasn't proven it yet, you're just baking in a lot of risk with that pick. So if yeah. it starts to get into the double digit picks, then I can't do it. But if you're talking I, I 150, have, that's fine. I have a much easier time doing it for Luis Robert than Adele too, I would say, because I mean, Robert was just a Robert was a terror at all levels last year. And it was clearly just a service time manipulation issues. The only reason he okay. isn't already in the majors. So he's coming up in mid April next year. And uh, based on what he's already accomplished in the minors, I feel comfortable saying he's going to be of some value. I don't know if he's going to be a total stud right out, away, but with his level of power and speed in Roto Leagues, I mean, I I have him outside of my top 120, but I, I think there's a case to be made that might be too low. Yeah, I think that's about the range. I've been with Robert <clears throat> since he came stateside. I remember the day he came stateside over here because the complex is like, 15 minutes from my house over at Camelback Ranch. And he's always impressed me. And last year, the popular thing was to hate on Luis Robert if you cared about prospects just because no one believed the power hadn't developed and no one really believed that he could stay healthy. Kind of like what we've talked about with guys like Carlos Correa. Well, last year he did it. 30-30 season in the minors, stayed healthy, hit the ball really hard, flies around the bases, and even though he could strike out a lot, he's actually surprisingly patient. And I've seen him for I've seen him, you know, for I guess two and a half years now in person over so many different levels. I, I agree. I completely agree. And there are prospects that are worth worth investment. And one of the fun things to do is to monitor places like the Arizona Fall League because it's a it's a stomping ground for guys that are close to the major league level. So you guys that are trying to get an edge on 2020 do pay attention because the amount of guys I talk to, and this is a tease for these future episodes. I'll keep dropping some nuggets. How about the next episode where we're going to review the uh, CBS mock draft that Scott White put together. I will get you some mid-year guys. I'll drop down because the amount of guys I talk to that they're ready. They're expecting to be at the major league level and there's some big names out there and there might be opportunities for you deep league drafters to take advantage of. And that's uh, what we're here for. So, all right, uh, we're up against it. Chris, 
I'm so excited that you came, finally. I mean, this is the first show that we've done together. Uh, people can find him on Twitter at CTowerCBS. Are we going to get you for a bunch more? Yeah, well, no. I, I just moved from uh, Fort Lauderdale to New York City, and like three weeks ago we moved, and the movers finally got here. So I have my podcasting equipment. I'm ready to go, and hopefully next time I won't be fighting a cold. Boom. Yeah, well, me too. I've been doing that. Scott, you're uh, uh, you're the healthy one right now, and uh, you're my boy. You can find him on uh, Twitter at CBS Scott White. I'm excited to keep talking about prospects, Scott. So uh, we're going to get that mock draft. Uh, give us a quick little teaser. What's a teaser people need to know for this upcoming mock that you did? Ah, oh, teaser. Putting <laughs> you on the spot. I want you to sell I, it. I want you to really well, I mean, sell the, it. The, 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 the way I led it was with Juan Soto going in the first round. We already got well into that. So I would say um, I would say there are a lot of interesting stolen base picks and not even necessarily at the high end. There, there are some guys who, particularly if you tuned out in kind of August and September when football was going on, uh, you'll be surprised to see some of the names that go in like the round 10 range. I like that. All right, so uh, get your stolen bases ready and get your draft prep ready because we got you with a mock draft breakdown in the next episode. He is Scott White. That is Chris Towers. I am Chris Welsh. We are out of here. If you've ever been in the market for a new home, you know home shopping can be a lot. There's so much you don't know and so much you need to know. What are the neighborhoods like? What are the schools like? Who is the agent who knows the listing or neighborhood best? And why can't all this information just be in one place? Well, now it is on Homes.com. As somebody who's been through this, I can tell you these features are so, so incredibly valuable. They've got comprehensive neighborhood guides and detailed reports about local schools, and their agent directory helps you see the agent's current listings and sales history. The area you live in is just as important as the house itself. You can get to know a neighborhood without ever setting foot in it. Say you're a really active person. You could find out about the nearest parks. Do they have a baseball field? Maybe you want to join a softball league like Chris and I play in. Also, Homes.com collaboration tools makes it easier than ever to share all this information with your family. It's a whole cul-de-sac of home shopping information all at your fingertips. Homes.com, we've done your homework.